This is our first Sunday gathering of 2024. Um, Due to that cancellation last week, um, the snow that is now gone, we get to gather and and worship and come and gather around this table before us. What a very fitting, fitting timing for us to start off this new year, grateful for God's sustaining grace of 2023, but looking forward to Him carrying us again by His grace into 2024. It's always appropriate to to start off the year around this this table. Uh, So we've come to worship, come to remember, we've come to declare, we've come to anticipate this exalted Christ who is reigning from His throne and who is coming back to establish His kingdom here on earth, His earthly kingdom. And this, this meal, this table certainly looks back, but it looks forward, doesn't it? As we anticipate that banquet, that dining with Christ that is yet to come. And our participation in that is exactly that, a declaration of His death until He comes. And as we partake, it reminds us that there is so much more to come. This is not it. If this was it, I'm not sure what we're doing. There's more to come. And through this meal, God will sustain us for the present as we look at the cross, as we look at salvation, which has a beginning, middle, and an end, as He initiates, He sustains, He completes this divine work of salvation. You'll remember, maybe, maybe not, in December, we we walked through or we sprinted through Luke's gospel uh, to kind of show the flow of his gospel overflowing into the book of Acts, uh, showing that journey of Christ, his absolute determination to go to the cross, who who would come in that humility, go to the cross to die in our place, who, who then rose again, conquering sin, victory over death, also conquering and, and, and putting to death the penalty that we deserve, took that wrath of God that we deserved upon himself, and then he took his place of exaltation. That was the flow that we looked at, the very unique account of Luke in chapter 24, seeing his flow from the manger to the throne. If you weren't here for that, that's okay. We're going to We're going to continue, I'll make a few references back to Luke's gospel and how he then in volume 2 in the book of Acts, he continues this narrative of Christ now risen and and exalted and how it plays out in the early church, how it plays out in the church. So today as we look at, again, the ascension of Christ, you can turn to Luke 24, maybe put a thumb over if you find Luke or, or Acts chapter 1, which is another book over, of course, but uh, let's open up to Luke 24 as we look at the ascension, a little more detail of the ascension and what are the implications of the ascension of Christ for the church. And again, very fitting that we come to this table, this table that we we come and not just remember, but we also anticipate, this table of of waiting, even looking. And I I wonder in, in our life, Are we looking? Are we anticipating the second coming of the King? Does it even concern us? 
Are we indifferent to it? Are we so attached maybe to the worldly pursuits that I don't have time to think about His second coming? Please, Lord, not now. I've got some things I'm doing. And then there are some of us who are maybe saying, no, come, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, right? And sometimes that motivation is just, get me out of here. And even with that, the wickedness of our hearts turns the second coming around to my selfish desire to get out of here. Instead of recognizing the glory of Christ as he, he comes in his second coming, the worship that he will demand as he comes and judges the nations, and then his kingdom that he establishes on this earth, it's, it's about Christ. Seeing him for all his glory, it's not about me getting out of here and getting to an easier place, a place of comfort. It's about the glory of Christ. It's about his, his fame. So we can go to two, two ends of that extreme. But this morning as we look at Luke 24, I pray that we will look at this text and understand how the ascension of Christ and his exaltation carried forward to the church what they did with this news, this truth of Christ's ascension. The challenge that faces the church today is to live as if the return of the king is, is, is delayed so much that we don't think about it. In this delay, we've got this risk of adopting this mentality that we dismiss the reality of his second coming altogether. It's way off in the future. It hasn't happened. Everybody says he's coming in their generation. Well, where is he? Instead of eagerly anticipating the danger that we face in this future event that is sure, and in fact solidified in this meal that we participate in, is the danger of adopting this mindset that uh, nonchalant, indifferent, passive, and maybe for some anxiety and fear. And maybe even more of a, of a risk for us is to even understand, or even to not even understand, to be unaware of the coming of Christ, to be so attached to worldly pursuits, my own pursuits, and I resist the call of Christ, I become indifferent to this profound truth of Christ's imminent return. And in some cases, maybe I don't even want to face that reality. The Lord's Supper has significant impact in this regard. It's going to remind us, yes, of, of what Christ did, but it's a sober moment, I believe, to awaken us to live in light of Christ's return as we anticipate to love the truth of his second coming. Will you pray with me before we look at Luke 24? Father, I, I pray that today as we come under your word, under the authority of your word, that we would look at this text in Luke 24 as it carries over, of course, into Acts chapter 1, that your Holy Spirit would open up our eyes to this absolute truth of your coming again. Your exalt, exaltation, your ascension, yes, but that means your journey is not finished. You are coming back. And Lord, you ask that we would wait for you and with anticipation and, and be ready and be prepared and, and look for your coming. 
But while we do that, I want us this morning to see through your Holy Spirit, through your Word, what is it then that we do? What do we do with this truth of you coming again? What do we do with this truth that you left in the first place and are now exalted at the right hand of the Father? So, Lord, open our eyes this morning and may you do your work through your word for your purpose, for your namesake in all of us here this morning and then through us as we as your church live out, live out this calling that you've given us. Bless your word here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke's gospel, uh, just real quick review, began with the story of Jesus, his arrival on earth, and it ends with his departure from the earth. Began with that incarnation, ends with his exaltation. Began with expectation, even in that Christmas story that we read every year, but it ended in consummation, at least consummation of his earthly work. It, It was finished, he completed it, and he was received into glory to sit at that th- on that throne with the Father. So the salvation that was proclaimed in the beginning, fully realized by the time we reach the end of Luke. Manger to the throne. Luke opens with the coming of Christ in Luke, and he ends with the going of Christ in Luke 24. Acts then opens with the going of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The angels in Luke chapter chapter 2 proclaiming that good news after they were revealed this news, they went, they proclaimed a Savior is born, God has come to dwell among us, and that message now is given to the church to declare that He not only came, He went to the cross, and He was exalted, and He's coming again. David Gooding and his commentary on Luke describes the movement of these two books, and that's primarily what we looked at in December, this way. Luke's inspired presentation of Christ is arranged in these two great movements. First, the coming of the Lord from heaven to earth, and then His going from earth to heaven. Appropriately, the climax of the going shows the man, Jesus, rejected and crucified on the earth, but now risen and ascending, being received up into glory, accepted by the Father. This ascension of Christ, which often we don't talk about it, we kind of skip right over it, it's a pivotal transition from Luke to Acts. Very intentionally, this is far from the end of the journey of Christ, that journey motif that Luke talks about. It, in fact, becomes the catalyst of the church's mission and empowerment of that mission becomes the catalyst. This is a compelling the church to go forward and spread the fame of Christ as they wait for His return. They are serving. They are worshiping the exalted Savior. So this morning what we're going to do is look at three different things flowing out of that message from December, but very much contained in Luke 24 of the ascension of Christ, in the mandate of Christ, the blessing of Christ, and then we'll talk about some of the implications of the ascension. So first of all, the mandate. If you've turned to Luke 24, we're going to look at Luke 24, starting in verse 44. 
We'll go to 49 here, first of all, looking at the mandate of Christ, and then we'll move in and look at the blessing of Christ. These are two very, very key moments, again, unique to Luke as the gospel writer. The other gospel writers do not even record the ascension of Christ. So this is very, very unique. In fact, all of, mostly all of Luke 24 is unique to Luke. Luke 24, verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, what he's doing is he's wrapping up the the Hebrew text, the Hebrew scriptures here in those three parts. They must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission. Typically, we think of Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. All the gospel writers have a a Great Commission just in a different way. This is Luke's mandate that he gives, the mandate of Christ, but Luke records it in a different way. But this is the Great Commission. In chapter 24, following the resurrection, Christ, first of all, expounds the law and the prophets, prophets, explaining in all the scriptures, these things are concerning me. He is the apex. He is the fulfillment of everything that was written. And he interprets his violent suffering, his victorious rising as following the script of God's written plan. Everything was written about me, and it all must be fulfilled. Notice a few key aspects in verse 44, 45. These are the words that I speak to you. While I was with you, these are the words that I spoke to you. Everything written about me in the law, the prophets, the writings must be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Thus, it is written. The mandate that Jesus is about to give clearly is rooted in the word of God. The source of the mandate, the authority of the mandate, the the means, in fact, of the mandate the parameters of this mandate of the Great Commission that he's about to give, the scope of it to all nations, all of it is rooted in the Scriptures. So Jesus, the Logos, the Word, the prophet, the teacher, opens up their eyes so that they can see him in the Word as the eternal Word fulfilling the very Word that he speaks of. Christ himself is the focal point, the apex of everything written. And he ties these departing words to the authority of the written word for a purpose. This is a mandate that is grounded in the word. The redemptive work of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, is not a myth. It's not made up. It's not a legend. You can track it from the first book to the last. All of it happened according to scriptures. This mandate that he leaves the church is grounded in God's desire to be known by all the nations, which is not new. Nothing here is new. You can find it all in the Old Testament so that they would know him, 
worship him so that his glory would fill the earth. Going right back to Genesis 1 in the creation account, fill all of his creation with his glory. This is a a theme that he'll go to over and over, and it's where we're all going in the consummation of God's redemptive plan. Jesus shows that this good news is historical, it's transformational, it's Christological, it's centered on him, it's global in in its extent, going to all nations with this message, and it's supernatural. Christ will soon clothe the disciples with power from on high so that they can live a good life, so that they can get, get through their, their trials? Well, certainly, but first of all, for Luke, in the way that he connects this, it's so that they can declare, so that they can proclaim, so that they can carry out this mandate as witnesses of Christ. So these parting words of Christ are significant, of course, for the disciples, for the apostles, and I believe significant for us today. Think about just even our family, our raising our children, our our discipling of other people, our ministry. The Word is the authority. Thus, it is written. Everything is grounded in the Scriptures. This mandate to go and make disciples, it's all grounded in the Scriptures, and it all comes with the authority of Christ. Our message is from God. Change will come from God. Transformation will come from God. A a new heart, a transformed heart, not behavior modification, which is often what we do in our discipleship, even in our raising of our children, behavior modification. But no, our message is from God, and that message comes with authority, and it comes with power. It's authenticated by a conquering Savior who died who rose again, who was received into glory in his exalted state as the Son of God. Thus it is written. As Jesus gives this mandate, he really picks up three three key verbs for us. There are three verbs in the the infinitive. They structure his mandate. Very simply, the Christ had to suffer. The Christ had to rise from the dead. And repentance and forgiveness of sins had to be proclaimed. Those are the three verbs, suffer, rise, and proclaim. Christ had to suffer. Jesus predicts this all along, even if you're just talking about the gospel of Luke. Luke shows this in his journey motif, the determination of Christ. It must happen. Over and over, Luke says, this must happen. These things must happen. He predicts his suffering. He had to suffer. The Christ had to also rise from the dead. Because of his death and resurrection, there is good news. Without it, we are all going about this in vain. Our faith is empty. It's all for naught. But he has risen. He is risen. He had to rise from the dead, and that carries forward into that next verb of repentance and forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed. This would happen in his name. This would be declared to all nations, this mandate talks about. Thus it is written, Christ must suffer, he must rise, and this message of forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed. Jesus is going to use his witnesses to advance his plan of bringing the gospel to all peoples. So he summarizes 
uh, his disciples' mission here is proclaiming this repentance uh, of forgiveness of sins in his, in his name. And of course, we know that the ultimate liberty that Christ gives is that he comes to proclaim, yes, the kingdom, but to achieve something. He achieves the release of prisoners from sin's bondage, from Satan's power, and from the penalty of sin. He, he releases prisoners from all of those things. As it is written, we proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Salvation comes only in Christ's name. So we, we declare Christ as our only hope, our only life, our only treasure who gave himself that we might stand before a holy God. So this mandate in verse 48, given to the disciples, you are my witnesses of these things. And the means to carry out that task in, in verse 49, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, speaking of the Holy Spirit, of course, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This mandate will be carried out, empowered by the promise of the Father. Not our gimmicks, not our tricks, not our marketing skills as a church. It'll be carried out by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the authority of Christ. If we were to jump now to Acts 1, just if you have your thumb there, if you do a few touches on your screen. You may even get quicker, uh, faster over to Acts 1. You're going to see the same things, just starting in verse 4. While they're staying with him, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Acts 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, still not quite understanding what's going on here, right? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. He was taken up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. You shall receive power, clothed with the Holy Spirit, power from on high. Luke 24, connecting, continuing here in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. So think, think with me just for a few minutes. Uh, a couple of elements uh, that flow out of this Luke 24 mandate that goes into Acts. Uh, think about Luke Acts in this way. First of all, with the mandate, the disciples are called to preach, to declare, to proclaim. This is exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. Jesus gives them the mandate. They give, he gives them the ability, in fact, to carry out this mandate. And the apostles, the early church, do just that. They proclaim Christ no matter what. In fact, it's very interesting if you were to look at the movement of Acts, they don't even flinch. From this point on, they don't flinch in this message. They go forward, they declare, they proclaim, they, they live out this mandate because they're empowered 
by the Holy Spirit. So they're called to preach, and that's what they do. That's the flow of the book of Acts. The message that they preach is to build uh, social buildings, help people with social programs, uh, build hospitals, whatever. No. The message they preach is a call to repentance. There's a shift today in the evangelical world. There's a shift in the mission world that it's all about all kinds of things because everybody can go and, and pitch in but very rarely do we still hear that we're to go and declare and preach this message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. But this is exactly what we see happening in Acts. If you were to go and through and read the sermons, the speeches, they're calling people to repent. Again, this is nothing new. Um, Isaiah talks about it. The prophets talk about it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. This is nothing new. The call to repentance, to turn to the Lord and find him to be merciful and find him to be the one who pardons when we hear the gospel, when we proclaim the gospel, when people have their eyes opened by the power of God in the gospel message, we see our sin. We see our inability. We see these merits that we're trying to build up and build up, and maybe this will be the thing that allows God to look at me and is pleased. No, we see that those are, those are all nothing. We instead see our mutiny against the high king. We see treason in our hearts. We see separation. We see the penalty of our sin is eternal damnation in hell, the wrath of God. Though we also see Christ, and not our merit, not our works, but we see his merit and his work, which was accepted and pleasing to the Father on our behalf. He took our place. And we come in a response of faith. And repentance flows from that. Repentance has to flow from that. Otherwise, what, what is faith? If it's not turning to Christ away from our sin, away from our self-merit, away from our life of treason and mutiny. So the disciples, are, they're called to proclaim in Acts this is exactly what we see. We see it flowing out of Luke 24. The apostles are bold. The early church is, is praying for more boldness. And then the message that they proclaim comes with this call to repentance. The declaration, the third thing is that they're, they're always, the declaration is an offer of forgiveness. We see that throughout Acts. Grounded in grace and mercy through Christ alone. People coming through faith, to a Savior. That's the pattern we see over and over in Acts. And that this message is, of course, for all nations. This shapes the book of Acts. It shapes it. It transformed. This mandate transformed the early church, empowered the early church to go and to reach the nations, to reach the peoples with the fame of Christ, with the message of 
forgiveness of sins through faith and repentance. And of course, we see in Acts that the authority behind this mandate resides in the name of Christ. Major theme in Acts. The events, the sermons, uh, tied to the authority of Christ. Right after uh, there's some healing, this is early on, chapter 4 of of Acts, Peter and John are arrested because they, they healed this man And they come and they put them before and they inquire and they say, by what power or what name did you do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? And how do they answer? By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. And this, of course, grounds them in this truth that carries them forward and Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This drove them. The authority that Christ left them as he gives the Holy Spirit. So volume two for Luke flows from this mandate. It provides their call, Uh, their motivation, their empowerment, their confidence, and their authority, their anticipation that this king is coming back. Did not result in hiding in a closet, holding up in the house, just the opposite. They went. They proclaimed. Thus, it is written, Christ must die, rise, and be proclaimed. That's the mandate. And if we were to look at Luke, we don't certainly have time to do this, but looking at the the journey of Luke, but looking at the the way that Christ prepared his disciples, particularly maybe uniquely with Luke and this strong motif of the journey, he's going to prepare the the, the disciples early on, bringing clarity not just to Theophilus as he writes to him, writes to the early church, writes to us, but through this and through the structure of Jesus' teaching. His teachings, his, his parables, he prepares us. And we don't have the time to do this, but Luke 12, 35 on, Luke 17, Luke 21, we're going to see these parables and teachings of the king is going away. He's coming back. The motif here of preparation is be ready. Be prepared. Be on guard. Keep your lamps lit. Stay dressed for action, Luke 12, 35. He is coming back. And you need to be ready at any watch of the night, the second watch, the third night, because we don't know when he will come back. And Luke prepares his disciples with this teaching of a king leaving through the teaching of Christ. But Luke uniquely, I believe, connects this to the book of Acts for us. Through this teaching of Christ, the parables that he speaks of, these warnings, is the element of serving until he comes. Serving until he comes. He prepares the disciples for a king who is determined to suffer, die, and who is coming back, and we must be ready because he is coming back. And then what Luke does in this very unique fashion, because he has volume two to his gospel in the book of Acts, he then shows the application of that preparation by bridging two acts from Luke 24, from all these parables, these teachings of a king leaving and coming back, 
the spread of the gospel. Luke unfolds all of this teaching with Acts to show us that we're, he, he's going away, but he's coming back and there to spread this gospel, proclaim the news of Christ. And that's exactly what we see unfolding. They go, they proclaim, they call people to repent, they declare Jesus as the only way to salvation. This power from on high is operating, is in action. The risen, exalted Christ is active. That's exactly what you'll read through the book of Acts. And we see them always pointing back, pointing back to the exalted Christ. Of course, the resurrection looms large in Acts. Uh, the apostles in their speeches, in their, their sermons, they're always pointing back, of course, to God raised him from the dead. And he has fulfilled what he promised by raising Jesus, it says in Acts 13. But also, they keep going back to the ascension of Christ. Again, through their, their sermons, through their speeches, they speak of the glorified Christ. They speak of the reigning Christ. They speak of the exalted Christ the Christ who is at the right hand of the Father. It keeps showing up as it, as it pops into their sermons and in their speeches and their discussions before even the authorities. Christ is glorified because he ascended, because he was exalted. He is reigning because he ascended. He was taken up and because of his exaltation. He is at the right hand of the Father. It's exactly what Peter preached starting out from the day of Pentecost, that this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is the mandate that carries forward into the book of Acts. Next, uh, I just want to look quickly at the blessing of Christ. This connects with the authority in Luke's account here. So if we turn back to Luke 24, in this closing scene, again, the ascension, unique to Luke, notice something that gets missed often, even though Luke mentions it twice. And he led them out as far as Bethany. We don't have time to talk about that, but this is near the Mount of Olives. This is the place where he will return, right? Zechariah 14.4. A very familiar place for Jesus. This is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. This is the, the Olivet Discourse location, the Last Supper, his prayer in the garden. This is where he was arrested, betrayed, arrested. So he leads them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, Luke again two times, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And what were they doing? They were waiting because then we turn over to Luke or to Acts. I almost said Luke 2, but I meant volume 2. Turn over to Acts and you see them waiting for the power from on high. So, and when he returns, um, as he gives this mandate, he calls them, of course, to be his, his witnesses who will carry forward this message. But lifting up his hands, it says here, he blessed them. And then while he blessed them, he's taken up. He gives no details of the actual blessing. What did Jesus say? What all took place? The word bless, very interesting, significant <clears throat> significant for Luke. From the very opening, we have Zechariah the priest who is rendered speechless 
And when he comes out to the people, he can't bless the people as the priest because he has no voice because of his disbelief. So he's unable to announce this priestly blessing. And of course, we know that Elizabeth blesses Mary and her child. Zechariah later on will bless God with his speech when his speech is restored. Simeon blesses God in the temple as they bring Jesus in to him. But after that, Luke doesn't even use the word until Jesus, post-resurrection, blesses the bread in Emmaus. When he meets those two on the road, they say, come dine with us, come spend more time, eat with us. That's when he uses this word again. This is, of course, when he opened up their eyes. Now, some commentators will see this blessing in Luke 24 after this long absence as a priestly act of blessing the people. I think Luke lacks this, and he doesn't really talk about or make these connections, but it is a blessing, and I think it's very significant. How do we typically see blessing in the Old Testament? Blessing is fundamentally an an expression of relationship to God. To be blessed is to have God's favor, to be in God's favor. And when we look through the Old Testament, we're going to see references abound at major transition points to make this point of God's favor. Uh, His call to Abraham, the marriage of Isaac, uh, Jacob's journey, even his deathbed as he blesses his his 12 children. speaks of favor and harmony that arises out from a covenant relationship with God. Not necessarily physical favors, uh, those kinds of things, but favor, harmony, relationship. Blessing is also seen as a pattern in the Old Testament as a, at a point of transference of leadership. Leaders at the point of their departure bless those who carry on. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Moses, they bless the next generation. They bless the next leader. It signifies and I believe communicates that God's presence His goodness, His mercy, His enablement is with you. He goes with you. He will carry you now forward. I believe Jesus is stepping into this firmly established pattern in the Old Testament of blessing. God will be with you. God will keep you. God will strengthen you. He blesses the apostles. He blesses these disciples. He empowers them for the task that is ahead. This transference of power, authority, as he goes, he sends the Spirit so that the church can carry out this task, this mandate of proclaiming Christ. This blessing of Christ, I believe a few chapters into Acts, will be very significant as they begin facing opposition and persecution. Now, with the transference of leadership we see in the Old Testament comes power, authority, uh, God's blessing on you. Uh, This office is being transferred. Authority carries over. I I believe Jesus blesses them in a specific sense at a specific time. And he he does it, interesting, not from the manger, right? He doesn't do it as a babe. He doesn't do it as as a young boy. He doesn't do it as he first called them. He doesn't do it as Joseph's son, He doesn't do it from the cross, but he does it as he's departing. As he was being taken up in his 
resurrected state as his exaltation is before them, that's when he blesses them. That's when he gives this transference from himself as he departs to them, but through the Holy Spirit, we see this. They didn't have power in themselves, but they were sent as ambassadors, as the, as the one who had all power and all authority to be the witnesses of Christ empowered to carry this message. We see this in Acts as they proclaimed with confidence and boldness to speak of Christ no matter what. And then it says they worshiped him. Interesting, Luke again does not use that word in reference to the disciples only in this case in Luke 24. As they see the taking away of Christ, they go and they worship him. They finally maybe get it. Not salvation-wise, but they get it. They see the culmination of his earthly work and the authority that he bestows on them as the church. They're going to recognize this, of course, in Acts 1, to go and proclaim. And as we see through Acts, there is no more uh, of these questions where the disciples, the apostles come and say, what is he talking about? Is it physical things? Is it? They get it from that point on. They worshiped him. They waited with anticipation of this power from on high. The blessing of Christ is on them. It made a difference. It came with this anticipation that the king was coming again. So some implications of the ascension. That How do we tie this all together? In the ascension, this is God's verdict of receiving the Son into glory, exalting him above all others. It's a divine reversal of the verdict at the cross. When the people rejected him, condemned him, crucified him, and killed him. This is a reversal, a divine reversal at the ascension. And it matters because he is coming again. And as Luke unfolds this narrative into Acts, he sets the church right in the middle of this unfolding. He sets us right in the middle. He hasn't come back yet but he is coming. He's ascended, he's exalted, and he's left this mandate. He's blessed that mandate. And with his authority and with his power, we go forward proclaiming his death until he comes. It matters. This is not a truth to be indifferent toward, passive with, lackadaisical about because the king is coming back. The ascension for the early church grounded the mandate which flows out of, of course, his blessing. It compels us. It keeps us on task. It centers us, I believe, guarding us from wandering ambitions, worldly pursuits. The second coming of Christ centers us. He is coming back. So, a few implications. There are many implications. I see the formatting is a little bit off on that slide, I think. But first of all, the work of Christ to build his church continues. And it will be completed when he returns. Luke, Gospel, Volume 1, carries into Volume 2. Christ is building his church. Nothing stops it. Nothing delays it. It will continue until he comes again. 
when Christ ascended to heaven, conquering death, sin, and Satan in his resurrection. Paul says in Ephesians 4 that when Christ ascended to heaven, he distributed gifts of grace to his people. He gave gifts to the church. He ascended so that he could bestow those gifts, so that he could empower this mandate to make disciples. And he would do that through his church. It would be accomplished because of his ascension and his exaltation. The exalted Christ is active. This shapes the church when we serve with anticipation. It shapes the church. When we go empowered with this mandate to proclaim Christ and carry that message of repentance for forgiveness of sins, it shapes the church. The power of Christ is also working in and through his church to fulfill the mandate that he's given to be his witnesses. Our transformation, our empowerment, our proclamation is all Christ working in us and through us as we're ambassadors going forward with this authority of our exalted king. While he was being taken away, these disciples were sure. They had certainty that he was alive, had risen from the dead, just as the scriptures had said. The scriptures are being fulfilled before their eyes. Redemptive history is on schedule, and he will return to establish his earthly reign. They hold before themselves this exalted Christ. He's the one they proclaim. He's the one that empowers them. He's also the one who empowers us. Jesus, as our unique mediator, our heavenly priest, is also working for us. He's enthroned. He's interceding for us. He's sustaining us. He's keeping us. In this world of ever danger, all around us, we have this ever-praying high priest standing up with his righteousness that covers us. He stands for us, and our faith will not fail. Satan cannot condemn us, and the Father will always be with us. In his exalted state, he is working not just in us and through us, but also for us. And this glorious return means that just as he was exalted, that one day we too will be exalted, will be glorified just as he promised that God's final removal of sin for the life of his saints comes at the consummation of our redemption when he makes all things new by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. The third thing is that the exalted Christ, uh, his return is imminent. He is coming back often very understated truth, yet this clearly shaped the early church. And every generation wrestles with this. He's coming back, but when? I've heard that, but I don't see him. Why am I waiting? There's a lot of things I could be doing here. Sure seems like he could have come back a long time ago. Sure seems like he should come back this week. Every generation feels that the day is near, so why not now? But he has a time, and he does not give us that time, but instead he gives us a mandate. And he empowers us with that mandate. He left and he'll return in the same way, in his glory, in his exalted state. And everything is going according to plan. 
And in this waiting and this seemingly long delays, plan is not off course. Everything is on time according to him. And Luke's purpose is, is simple here. Jesus may be visibly, may not be visibly present, but the plan moves on as we see in Acts as the community, the, the church, takes this task, takes this mandate forward, actively engaging with people, with the gospel, until he comes again. And the point of the opening of Acts is don't look up, don't be merely idle, don't just sit there waiting for this return, but be active, move out, share what God's done in your life, share what God will do in others' lives, share this message of the gospel with others. Their calling, their concern, their, their mission is not to focus on the timing, but it's to receive the enablement. That's Acts 1.8. Not to be concerned with the time of when, but to receive the enablement, the power from on high to carry out the mandate, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. So this ascension, the exaltation of Christ, cements us that He's coming again. He conquered sin, death, the penalty of sin. He went away, but He's coming back in all His glory. And for the early church, this shaped them, motivated them, grounded them. Their awareness of the exaltation meant that the return of Christ is imminent. We don't know the day or the hour. It's imminent. He is coming back. And we're to serve with this mandate, this empowerment of Christ, of Him actively working in His church, through His church, for His church. And in that exalted position, in his ongoing ministry, Hebrews 7, uh, 25 says, he is able to save to the uttermost those who are drawn near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He will save us to the uttermost. Christ is the ground of our hope, and he saves us completely. And that consummation is yet ahead of us. Our challenge, as I said in the beginning, is that the potential is to live as if the return of the king is indefinite. It's delayed. We're at risk of dismissing the reality of his second coming being imminent, and that brings with it apathy and passivity and self-focused worldly pursuits. Instead of waiting on Christ by serving him, by declaring his gospel by being his witnesses who go out with this message of the forgiveness of sins that comes through faith and repentance to love his second coming anticipating this banquet that is before us and today as we gather here our remembering is also an anticipation it's meant to sustain us to strengthen us, to fortify us for the present. For the present what? The mandate. To make disciples, to proclaim his death until he comes. Father, we thank you for this truth of your ascension, your exaltation, but with that, coupled together with it, is the truth that you are coming again. And as we move to this Lord's table, we move to a place that 
Maybe sometimes we don't even understand why this table, why this small taste of the bread and the cup, but Lord, you give us this for a very specific reason, to sustain us until you come, that we would proclaim your death until you come. And Father, I I pray that as your Spirit opens us up to the reality of your second coming and opens us up to the truth of, of our King coming back, will you even now challenge us with, are we waiting? Are we anticipating? Are we looking forward to your return? And are we actively worshiping, actively declaring, actively proclaiming the message of the gospel as your witnesses? Empower us even in that through your Holy Spirit, through the truth of your word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So on that night of his betrayal, as the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, um, just like in Bethany at that place just before he ascended, these disciples get these front row seats to very pivotal moments in redemptive history when the Passover is changed over to this Lord's Supper, a different meal. And then also, as they remember his death and resurrection, of course, the anticipation of it. But now as we gather, it's the anticipation of his coming back, all under the truth of his ascension, his exaltation. And Luke's account in Luke 22 is very interesting. I'm going to read from verse 14 through 16, take notice of a very important element. This is the, the account of his, his uh, last supper with them. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, the apostles with them. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus announcing that this was the last Passover that he would eat with them until all of this is fulfilled, meaning the fulfillment of the future kingdom of God. He's going to abstain from this meal that he shares with them on that night. He will not sit at the Passover table until he comes and establishes his earthly reign. This gives the disciples and us, I believe, assurance again of his return and the establishment of his, his reign, his kingdom reign here on earth. He repeats in verse 18, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Luke's journey, his determination of Christ, moving us forward into this. He's about to be crucified. He's about to stand in our place as that sinless Lamb of God. And in this meal, he's already pointing forward to his return. He is so far ahead of the disciples thinking at this point. This meal that we share is a foretaste, of course, of a banquet of consummation. Told about even by the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah 25 says, this is a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine for all people on the mountain of the Lord. And I think John picks up on this in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is, right, is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This banquet is coming. Jesus will dine with us again. And this reinforces our hope every time we celebrate this meal. We do that by looking back at what he has done, what he has accomplished at the cross, but also with anticipation of him coming again. His second coming when we will enjoy that meal with him, that messianic banquet with Christ. For those of us who are in Christ here this morning, this meal, of course, is for us, and we bring nothing to the table. We're weak. Our inability is more real when we sit around this table than maybe when we're not even in this building, but we're weak and in need of grace and mercy. This is a meal for us, prepared for us by our exalted Christ. And if you have not put your trust in Christ yet, we would ask that you let these elements pass, but that you would witness this this meal, this proclamation of the death of Christ until he comes, and understand that Christ died for you. And understand that through faith and repentance, as you respond to your lostness, your sin, your inability to do anything about that, and the penalty that is before you, this is the meal that we that represents our deadness, our inability to come to Christ, and all the merit of Christ, this perfect life, spotless lamb who took our place, who is our substitute, and he atoned for us that we could enter into a relationship with the Father, a holy God, that we could never enter in any other way other than through Christ and placing our faith in him and him alone. So as we come to this meal, we we partake, we declare his death until he comes. We anticipate his coming again as his church. And for all of us, we take this time to examine, am I anticipating his second coming? Am I chasing after worldly pursuits? And all of that has just been pushed out. But it's a time for us to come to this meal and again feast on Christ, not in a literal sense, be sustained by him through this meal. I'm going to ask Jeff Furman to pray for the bread as the men stand and as they prepare to serve you. Ask Jeff Furman to pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, and I thank you for this time set apart, Lord, that we can gather around the table together, Lord. God, as we uh, pray for this the bread this morning that we're going to partake in, Lord, and, and the body, the broken body that it represents, the perfect sacrifice, Lord, for our sins. God, as we anticipate your return someday, Lord, uh, spend eternity with you, Lord, I just uh, pray that we sense the urgency, Lord, to share with those around us, Lord, that... Uh, the hope that we have through you and through the sacrifice, Lord. I pray for boldness, Lord, to uh, share with those that we come in contact with, whether it's family, friends, 
God, that we could just uh, express the hope and live a life, Lord, that is honor and pleasing to you. And we ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Repeating the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together as we remember Christ. I asked Bob Wickman to pray for the cup. Father, it was just a few weeks ago we celebrated the gift of the Christ child, the one who came to take away our sin. And Lord, uh, now we stand before this table and we're put in remembrance of the great price that he paid. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and uh, he gave his life. Uh, the, the life is in the blood and Father, we, there is no remission of sin without the blood being given. And Christ endured all that shame and humiliation and agony on the cross for us. He was the perfect substitute. And we just thank you so much for giving him to us that we might have life and life abundant. Lord, uh, just ask that you would help us remember that it was a, a once-for-all sacrifice on our behalf. Once for all sin, for all sinners, and all time. We give you thanks for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen. As the men come and take up this benevolence offering, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Thank you, Father, again for your goodness to us. Your provisions are endless. We can't even number them. We can't number the amount of grace and mercy that you shed on us. And Lord, as a good, kind God, you have given so that we can also give and I pray, Lord, as we take up this offering here today, that you would use this benevolence offering for your purpose and for your glory. As we give with joyful hearts, as we give with hearts of uh, love and gratitude toward you, may you use this for the furtherance of your kingdom, for the furtherance of your work, for the furtherance of you reaching into lives that are broken in need and May you also give us the wisdom to know how to use these funds appropriately for your kingdom and for your namesake. We ask your blessing on it in Christ's name. Amen.